Hello, everyone. Let's take it from the top again. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world on this summer evening in New York. It's not too hot. It's a little bit humid, but uh, typical for July. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate. And as many of you know, I love this city. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, you know that we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? On some shows, like tonight's, we host shows about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Uh, Prior episodes have covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, or had some interesting history here in the city, about half of them actually. We've talked about the history of the women's rights movement and the women's suffrage movement specifically. We've talked about African-American history in the city, going back to the time of the Dutch, There were African-Americans in New York for 400 years. We've also talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the spawning of the gay rights movement, which happened, modern gay rights movement, which happened right here in a bar downtown. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. We've looked at the history of punk and opera. We've explored the city's greatest train stations. And yes, we've even looked at some of its bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and there are some other services that have our stream. Tonight, we are going to focus on an artistic but practical part of New York, um, specifically about Art Deco architecture in New York. Um, New York is an amazing city for architecture. There are so many periods, so many great times, so much great expression of ideas And in my view, perhaps there was none so great as the period of Art Deco architecture, which occurred in New York from the mid-1920s until probably the Second World War. Well, I am pleased as punch tonight to have not just as my first guest, but as my guest on the whole show, my friend and Rediscovering New York regular, David Griffin. David's also the special consultant to the show. David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast, providing creative sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. David's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects and design firms, in addition to developers, brokers, and marketing companies. His Room at the Top series, co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Art New York, is the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. His latest blog is called Every Building on Fifth. It documents every single building on Fifth Avenue. Get that, everyone. It's probably eight miles long, Fifth Avenue, from downtown and Washington Square all the way up to the Harlem River, where it meets on the east side in Harlem. Uh, And David's writing has also appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. David, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. It's good to see you. Good to see you, Jeff. Um, Some of our listeners have heard about your background, but as we continue to have an expanding listenership, which I'm really enthusiastic about, um, there are some people who who don't know about your background and how you got involved in the work that you're in. Um, You're from New York metropolitan area originally, but not from the city itself. Uh, no, I grew up uh, on Long Island, actually, until I was about 12, and then we moved up to the Hudson River Valley. Uh, but we were always going in and out of the city, um, you know, for visits and things like that. So I definitely consider myself a New, New Yorker in that sense. You know, I'm always fascinated by how people uh, become interested in the specific, not just the fields, but in those that have uh, artistic leanings to them. How did you get interested in architectural history and specifically in New York's history of architecture? Well, my, um, uh, my siblings and I were among the first uh, children ever to be employed by New York State as museum docents. Uh, back when I was about 10 years old, uh, we all were costumed interpreters at the old Bethpage Village Restoration out on Long Island. And that sort of woke a real curiosity in me for the buildings of that time and then buildings in general and American buildings 
specifically, and sort of the development of architecture from the time period of old that age, which is the 1850s, all the way through to our current day. So I've always been very interested in how buildings kind of fit into a, a historical narrative as well as an aesthetic one. And um, yeah, just basically became very interested in the, the built environment as a, sort of a, a kind of a feature of American history and American art. Hmm. Well, I want to ask you a little uh, more about your business, but we'll do that a little later on in this in, in this episode. Um, to Art Deco architecture, uh, I'm uh, I love it. <laughs> I prefer it. <laughs> I, I'm enthused by it as I walk down the street. But New York wasn't born with Art Deco architecture. There were building styles before that. What what were the building styles that existed and that architects designed for before? Art Deco reared its head on our on our on our urban scene. Well, depending on how far back you want to go, there's the full contingent, of course, of 18th and 19th century styles. But the ones that came uh, directly prior to Art Deco were basically um, forms of Beaux Arts architecture that were either neoclassical in inspiration, um, such as the City Hall Annex or Grand Central Terminal or the Metropolitan Museum of Art, or actually looked to the Gothic for inspiration. And this was very true not just of churches and cathedrals and other religious buildings and academic centers that sort of sought a connection with European Gothic, but with the new skyscrapers, such as the Woolworth Building, which realized that Gothic architecture would help accentuate the vertical lines of the buildings. So um, the earliest skyscrapers in New York very quickly took on a kind of a Gothic aspect um, while some did remain in more of a high Renaissance mode, such as the Flatiron Building, which borrows a lot of its exterior detailing from uh, Florentine and other types of classical Italian architecture. Uh, so Art Deco sort of cast these things aside in a way, and it was a way of sort of, I think, streamlining the process, uh, the shape, and ultimately the aesthetic form of the building. Uh, it was a simplification, but in many ways it was almost as lavish as the buildings that came before it because there was a lot of celebration of both old and new materials. You see a great stonework and brickwork in Art Deco architecture, but you also see new forms of glass, um, new forms of facade cladding, uh, things like aluminum, things like early forms of even plastic that just weren't around for the prior generation of architects. And I think um, Art Deco architecture in this country has its roots actually in the work of architects such as Frank Lloyd Wright and Louis Sullivan, who experimented with abstracted forms. They took natural forms like hollyhocks, for example, or roses, and then created a kind of a mechanized language for them where they became sort of flattened out and very, very geometric. And I think a lot of Art Deco um, also here refers very explicitly to Native American art and design. Um, there are buildings in New York City that do incorporate uh, references to things like Navajo or Apache or Choctaw uh, designs, everything from the baskets to the rugs to you know, headdresses and so, and so forth. And that too is very much a nationwide phenomenon. You see it in Detroit, you see it in Los Angeles, you see it in Chicago, um, where Native American art and sort of mythology became uh, a kind of an inspiring force for some of Native American art or, or the inspirations of Native American art also uh, uh, were extant before Art Deco, I, you know, even in the Montauk Club, which yes. uh, we talked about uh, not too long or showed that, that, that long ago. There are, uh, ex uh, I don't know about their examples, but there are certainly representations of Native America. Uh, yes, Native from Americans. the 1880s onward, there was a new interest in Native Americans in part because of the uh, centennial that just occurred. And obviously the Native Americans are the people who, were living here first, and they developed a very specific culture, and that became of interest to people of an artistic nature. But with Art Deco, we see certain colors and patterns that are abstracted from their context and become almost like a form of cubism. So in some ways, it's, a, it's an homage to, but it's also not a straight representation of the way it was in the Montauk Club, where it's clear that you know it's telling the story of a specific tribe. David, do you think there were any hybrid buildings sort of on the cusp between neo-Gothic and Art Deco before we started to get, you know, pure Art Deco representations in, in some of our greatest skyscrapers? 
Very much so. I think an early um, architect who worked uh, in a, an idiom that we now recognize as Art Deco, and this, this was pr prior to the word, the term Art Deco actually being popular, by the way, that didn't really come about until the 1970s, which was called These Buildings Modern. Uh, but Ralph Walker was definitely an architect who anticipated some of the this kind of tendencies that we now think of as Art Deco, uh, particularly with the huge telephone exchange buildings he was doing in New York City. And then you had Raymond Hood, who was a Chicago-based architect, who had done the Gothic uh, Tribune Tower in Chicago that does actually have some elements that sort of point to Art Deco. But he came to New York and built the American Radiator Building, which, of course, overlooks Bryant Park on West 40th Street. It's a golden black tower that appears at first glance to be Gothic. And then when you really look at it, you see that it's actually kind of incorporating the mechanized forms of the radiators themselves as a kind of idea that, you know, heat is rising through the building and that the gold portion of the building represents the warmth being radiated out through these kind of tubes and channels and kind of blocky forms. So there are um, numerous buildings of that ilk that sort of are shading into Art Deco without being purely of that movement. And I think it's a very important to realize that a lot of American architecture at this time was highly synthetic, by which I mean it was a synthesis of different types of inspiration. There's, a, for example, a great concert hall in Cleveland, Severance Hall, which has one of the most magnificent Art Deco interiors in the world. Uh, it's just absolutely spectacular, one of the most beautiful rooms in, in, in the nation. And home to uh, one of the finest orchestras in the United States. Exactly. I'm a big I'm a big Cleveland Orchestra fan. Myself. Well, it, it has a, a marvelous interior, but the exterior is a very staid neoclassical design. And the lobby actually makes reference to Babylonian and Egyptian architecture. And people didn't think there was anything odd about that. The eclecticism and the idea that you could, you know, try a little of this and try a little of that and try a little of the other thing uh, was very much a driving force in the in the 1920s. It was very much a period of eclecticism. Mm. By the way, one of my little uh, uh, things on my bucket list is to go hear the Cleveland Orchestra in Severance Hall, which I haven't done yet. But I, but neither I, I, but I, I would look forward to it. I have a we have a mutual friend actually who uh, hails from Cleveland. And, um, he tells me that the, the, the hall's acoustics are absolutely fine. Yes, whose name is also David. <laughs> yes. Uh... Um, I want to talk, be before we get on to uh, uh, the, the two Art Deco jewels in the crown, as far as I'm concerned, we don't have one, we have two of them. Well, we have many, but, you know, uh, uh, the, the best ones. Um, let's talk a little bit about the setback and how that influenced Art Deco architecture. Um, before the setback, buildings just would go up without any sort of rules about setback. But uh, at some point, I think uh, during the First World War, the, the city's uh, building codes changed. Yes. In 1909 through 1912, the Equitable Building was built down on Broadway. And this building rose as a, a sheer cliff right from the street. It was very large. It was neoclassical in style. It had a very lavish lobby. But people were very alarmed by this because they thought, you know, if the streets become lined with these things, there goes our light and there goes our air. And because roads are paved at a much higher level than they were back then, we forget the fact that there were often dust storms that circulated in New York City and that people were literally afraid of being smothered by clouds of dust and debris that would kind of race up the canyons from the, the dirt and the cobblestone roads. So the city passed a law in 1916 called the, it's called the 1916 Zoning Ordinance. And they stipulated that for every um, story of height at certain levels, there had to be a corresponding setback. No, no building could fill the full, the full volume of its site. So the setback became a challenge immediately for architects. And there was one um, designer in particular, Hugh Ferris, who created a series of books and monographs, including one called The City of Tomorrow, where he said, well, the setback can be a way of really invigorating architecture. It can kind of drive us to literal new heights. And he created these incredibly expressionist and detailed, very, very beautiful um, black and white images that really influenced an entire generation of architects and led to the idea that the setback could be a way to make a building kind of emerge from its site like something coming out of a chrysalis or a mountain range. Actually, Buildings Like Mountains was one of his most famous images from that series. So instead of being seen as something negative, which it initially had been, 
uh, it was seen at least by the design community as a positive thing. And everywhere you go in New York, particularly on the West side, you'll see buildings that are not necessarily very fancy, but that inc incorporate what was called a waterfall front. Whereas the building rises, it goes back and back and back and back and back. And there's usually a penthouse or a major office on the top of it. And mm. those line the, um, the Western streets, uh, particularly in the thirties and forties uh, to this day, there's a very high concentration. Well, I know I talked about a jewel in the crown, but I'm going to make our listeners wait about a minute and a half because we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin on the Art Deco Architectural Treasures in New York City. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Rediscovering New York and our episode on Art Deco skyscrapers in New York. My guest tonight is David Griffin, the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. Um, David, there are two special things about tonight's show for me. One is I get you for a whole hour <laughs> because whenever you're on for a half an hour, um, I always feel like there's so much more we could talk about in your expertise. <laughs> and the second thing is that um, as much as you know about everything else we have talked about, um, your professional work actually relates spot on to to the um, to the subject matter of tonight's show, which is architecture and and building design. Um, what is Landmark Branding, and what do you do in the company? Well, Jeff, Landmark Branding is a company I've had since 2013, and I provide uh, creative marketing solutions and assistance mm -hmm. to brokers, owners, and developers of both historic and architecturally distinguished buildings uh, throughout New York City and the tri-state area. Um, I've assisted with things like VIP tours, uh, bios for teams, um, other types of information on you know, locations and structures that are available. Uh, as you mentioned, I uh, have been running with Jennifer Wallace, the co-founder and co-director of Mason Jars New York, uh, a series called Room at the Top, where we would tour historic skyscrapers, go actually up, up to them as far as we could, and discuss the importance of art and architecture as part of New York's public life, but also its economic life. Um, unfortunately, you know, obviously with the current situation, we are, we've been unable to kind of continue those, but we are exploring ways that we might be able to do some virtual work in that field. Uh, and uh, yes, I've uh, written numerous articles. I'm uh, planning a book project on the history of the penthouse, and I have just begun to make new additions to my blog, Every Building on Fifth, which, as you noted, is a, a picture of every single building on Fifth Avenue. And I'm going back and sort of revisiting some of those photos and some of those sites and updating them uh, so that we can see 
what's going on with the city now, you know, in terms of buildings being renovated, buildings being restored, buildings being demolished, replaced. Uh, Fifth Avenue really is this kind of amazingly broad tapestry of uh, architectural activity in New York City. And it's very interesting to watch as it kind of changes and shifts with every, you know, passing and I have a confession to make. As much as an avid consumer I am of, of what you do, um, the blog is so comprehensive. It has so many entries. Um, it's almost like going to a library and picking out a big book and reading through it and picking out things that you want to read. But I haven't sat down and, and read the whole thing. But uh, well, I eventually I, I will have done it. I think it's more than 500 <clears throat> entries. And it is an entry for every building. Um, they're not very long, but I and I took all the photos myself, except for ones that I think were provided to me at certain places. And it's very interesting. It really was a trek. It took um, many, many years to complete because I had to sort of parcel it out and do it in sections, et cetera, and so forth. We start at the Washington Square Arch, and we go all the way up to the magnificent Art Deco Armory in Harlem, actually one of, again, one of the city's most um, sort of, I think, imposing Art Deco buildings. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to kind of picking up where I left off and revisiting some of those countries. If any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, how could they, how could they reach you? My website is www.darklandmarkbranding.com. And my email address is dgriffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N, at landmarkbranding.com. The blog is linked on my website, um, as are certain other articles and things that I've written. Um, I've written for Brownstoner. I've done numerous listings for them and for other brokers. And I've been working on a podcast series with um, Jerry Minsky and his team at Douglas Owen. And uh, yeah, it's a uh, really a, um, a pleasure to be working with the community, uh, with people that really care about and are concerned with architectural value. Well, you know, we love having you. I love having you on the show and, and, and the listeners love hearing you as well. I'm glad you're a regular. Um, the Chrysler Building, the Chrysler yes. Building, cathedral that it, that it is, although not neo-Gothic. We can't talk about the Chrysler Building without talking about what was then a competition to build the tallest building in the world. And only in New York, you know, in the boom after the First World War, would this kind of competition have happened. Right. So basically, the world's tallest building became a thing. Um, it had been a thing for many, many years in New York. Actually, the Park Row Building, which most people don't know about, it's a rather unusual design still standing down near City Hall was for a while the tallest building in the world at 22 stories. Um, just to clear up one minor myth that often gets repeated, the Flatiron Building is often said to have been the tallest building in the world. It was never point, the tallest building in the world. It never was. No. The Park Row Building predates it by four years and was two floors taller, not counting the dome. So the mm. Flatiron was never the tallest. However, we then skip ahead to things like the Woolworth Building, of course, and um, the incredible MetLife Tower on Madison Square, and other buildings that sort of were about a display of not just height, but how fast the buildings themselves could be put up. Um, the Woolworth Building rose at what was then considered an astonishing rate for a building of that size and magnitude, and uh, so did the MetLife Tower. The MetLife Tower actually had a uh, very interesting series of photographs taken by European photographers who were very interested in how the building sort of evolved. Um, so you had the Chrysler Building rising, you had 40 Wall Street rising. Each one was determined to outdo the other. And so there was a lot of uh, sort of kind of interesting espionage going on in a way, you know, and, and sort of the architects trying to psych one another out. Um, uh, Walter Van Allen, who was the architect of the Chrysler Building, published a design that showed the building rising to a dome. And he did not reveal the fact that they were going to have a crown installed. That was something that he was, he was waiting for 40 Wall to commit to a program where he knew that they couldn't pull something like that off. And they did. They created a brick spire with a copper crown on it. And because his was of aluminum, it was actually lighter. And the whole top of that building is metal because it's basically a huge fake out to the, the architects and the owners of 40 Wall. So they were able to kind of claim the title, um, albeit briefly, because the very next year, the Empire State Building was completed, and that became the tallest building in New York. Um, and then through the Depression and the post-war period, 
Obviously, aesthetics changed. Uh, people weren't that interested in the tallest building anymore until the erection of the World Trade Center in the 1970s. And then, you know, obviously our latest crop of super talls, uh, which began some 10 years ago or so. I love I love the story of uh, how the Chrysler Building became the tallest building in the world. Van Allen waited until Forty Wall was capped, you know, that yeah. was actually done, and then uh, they were assembling that that incredible spire in the building. It wasn't, you know, they were they were they yes. were constructing it in the building, and as soon as it was capped, up it went, and uh, actually it went up the day before Black was it Black Friday or Black Monday? I should know this, but the day before the stock market crash. The and, uh, funny thing is, is that the architect for 40 Wall Street was H. Craig Severance, who had been architectural partners with William Van Allen, and they had separated and um, gone their, their, their different ways, uh, in part because they really just had incompatible personalities. Severance was much more staid, he was much more business-oriented, and Van Allen, Van Allen was a very flamboyant personality. What are some and, of the... Uh, I'm sorry, David, I, I didn't... Oh. Uh, no, I, as befits the building, I, I, I think you see a lot of Ben Allen's character in the design for the Chrysler. Oh. What are some of the architectural design elements on the exterior of the building? Well, you've got the amazing crown, of course, which I think is the, the best known. Uh, this was one of the first buildings to really go all out with the use of aluminum, which in prior generations had been a, an incredibly expensive material. <clears throat> Um, aluminum was sort of difficult to manufacture prior to the 20th century, and you just didn't, it just wasn't available in the quantities that they used for this building. Uh, the crown is sometimes thought to have been modeled on a tiki crown. Um, this is probably due to the fact that William Van Allen once wore a version of it as a hat at a masked ball, uh, where he attended with fellow architects dressed as their own buildings. Um, but I think Van Allen at one point denied that and said that it was simply an abstract design that he had come up with and that the, the kind of radiating points he felt made sense. Uh, there are, of course, the great um, eagle slash gargoyles at the corners of the building. And then further down, a little bit closer to the base, you see um, winged radiator caps. Uh, those were the original hood ornaments uh, for the Chrysler cars of the time. And if you look at the brick frieze that surrounds the building where the winged radiator caps are, you get a kind of a sense of a series of automobiles driving one after the other with hubcaps sort of set into these circular uh, brick radiuses that are meant to evoke wheels in motion. So there's a lot of automotive symbolism going on in the building. Um, some people are actually surprised somewhat to find out how much of the building is brick. Yes, I was Obviously. surprised to read to, to read about that today. The, the it, it's a brick building. It's a yes, brick building. It, it is a brick building. It's white and black brick with silver trim. The aluminum portion of it really is regulated to the ornaments and to the crown above and to the spandrels of the doors and other things of that nature. So though you, you have this impression that the entire building is this very bright, shiny sort of fantasy, uh, much of it is just straightforward uh, black and white brick. And um, much of that is also relatively not ornate. It's just detailed so well and proportioned so well that you think you're seeing a lot more going on there than there actually is. Uh, sort of one of the tricks of the trade that I think Art Deco architects were very good at. And one of the things that I love about the Chrysler building on a sunny day is the, the sheen of light that comes off the crown. It's just it's incredible. Yeah. Um, in fact, I have I have a personal saying. I have two favorite skyscrapers in New York. One of them is a daytime, and one is a nighttime. We'll be getting to my nighttime favorite uh, in the second half of the show. Um, aside from the building being being magnificent on its own, um, the Chrysler Building is a work of art. Uh, yes. there's an amazing mural in the in the lobby. Yes, the the lobby ceiling mural at the Chrysler Building is really one of the great American art works of Art Deco. Um, it was created by the artist Edward Turnbull, and it's entitled Transport and Human Endeavor. Um, at the time of its installation, the mural was actually the largest in the world, and it was painted on canvas and then applied to these interior concave spaces in a technique that is known as mariflage, in which the canvas is affixed to a surface using a mixture of plaster or cement, sometimes incorporating a white lead ore to help it dry. So it is an actual painted canvas but it is fixed to the, the plaster of the ceiling itself. 
Um, the theme of the mural reflects the jazz age interest in new forms of technology and industrial work. So you have factory workers, airplanes, and of course, transportation. And these themes are, of course, doubly meaningful for the client company, which built automobiles. So the Chrysler also built airline engines, and several of those are prominently displayed. Uh, there is a, a number of workers gathered around a Chrysler engine, uh, numerous airplanes, as well as a portrait of the building itself rising into the sky in a way that almost suggests an Arthur Rackham fantasy. It's a very interesting sort of pastel rendition of a building that's, you know, usually interpreted as being very bright and hard-edged and shiny. Uh, there are similar types of mural art, of course, elsewhere in New York, particularly at Rockefeller Center. But the Turnbull mural is unique for its softness of color and effect. There is, as I said, a kind of an unusual choice of a pastel palette. And he also incorporates a great deal of metal and foil gilding. So there's a sort of a successionist play of light in the, in the lobby that is really quite unique. Uh, very dreamlike, and the result is actually closer to certain forms of Art Nouveau than to Art Deco, as it would later come to be understood. So you have this contrast between this kind of very smoky, glittering, ethereal mural, and then the hard-edged, gold-colored geometric forms of the lobby itself, which of course incorporate the famous elevator doors, uh, which show these amazing fantail designs that include everywhere between, I think it's 38 to 49 different types of wood uh, in each set of doors. And they are really uh, quite remarkable in and of themselves. I mean, I think the elevator doors get a lot of attention. Uh, the mural is also fine. The The staircase down to the subway is quite unique. Yes. Uh, it really is just a brilliant space overall. Well, when I go to Grand Central and I'm going up Lexington, I frequently like to go under Lex and go down those steps and come up just to get on that staircase to yes, come up, exactly. come up into the lobby. Too. Yeah, it, it's glorious. It's one of those, you know, you're coming out of the subway in New York and, you, and you're coming into the lobby of the Chrysler building. I have the same experience with uh, Rockefeller Center, too, but the Chrysler building a little bit different. Um, we're going to take a break in a minute, David. But, you know, speaking of room at the top, there's a very interesting room at the top of the Chrysler building, which sadly is, is uh, really not seeable yes. to the public any longer. Well, it's the remains of the Cloud Club, and very little of that has survived, unfortunately. It was uh, really kind of a fantasy deco wonderland. It was a nightclub and observation space, uh, cocktail bar place, and, uh, you know, exactly the sort of thing you think people would love to visit. But um, at some point, I think in the late 70s, early 1980s, the rest of it was, the, the last of it was uh, demolished. And that's now office space as well. I did have a chance to go up into an upper office in the spire and look through those little triangular windows. It's quite remarkable. Mm. Um, the spaces themselves are very unique. I don't know how practical they are, but they're sort of amazing. And the office that I visited had a um, sort of interior design where they really exposed a lot of the external architecture. So you really had a sense that you were in the spire and looking at how the spire was put together, which was rather unique as well. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our fascinating conversation with David Griffin of Landmark Branding about New York's amazing Art Deco skyscrapers, two in particular. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. 
Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York and the myriad textures of our amazing city. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York with Vince Rocco, my friend and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show is live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. You can hear him on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on those channels are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get back to the second part of the show, even though Rediscovering New York is not a program about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, David, welcome back to Rediscovering New York. And uh, since we're talking about Art Deco skyscrapers, uh, I think it takes us now to what is perhaps New York's most iconic building ever. That's the Empire State Building. Yes. Um, well, I know of one native New Yorker uh, who's since moved to Florida, thankfully, who thinks that the most iconic skyscraper bears his own name. But uh, I digress, and we won't get into that on the show. Different, um, different show. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we actually covered him on the show about uh, the presidents in New York. Um, and we also talked about uh, that building for uh, a minute or two. Uh, David, how did the Empire State Building get its name, first and foremost? Well, it's derived from the actual term, the Empire State, which is the nickname of the state of New York. So it was very much, I think, um, a conscious decision to identify the building with the, not just the city, but the state. And, uh, you know, as Jeff, as you know, there was very much a political faction behind the creation of the building. It was, uh, you know, in, in some sense, a, um, uh, a, a depression era public morale boost from beginning to end. Um, and I think that uh, it was interesting to realize that a lot of the workers came from different places in New York State um, and other places such as Canada, where uh, the Mohawk Reservation, uh, several people from the Mohawk Reservation near Montreal came down to work on the Empire State Building um, during the period of its construction. Mm. How did it figure into the competition for the world's tallest skyscraper? You sort of had the like the battle of the bands between between the Chrysler Building and 40 Wall Street. Um, how did the Empire State Building figure into all of this? We, because it did become the tallest building in the world for decades. Well, it was, I mean, obviously it was part of the, the kind of um, race into the sky, as the popular media called it at the time, and very much representative of the, the sort of optimism in the 20s. Uh, when, when there was a major building boom going on originally. Um, 40 Wall Street and the Chrysler Building were both vying for this distinction. They were already under construction work began on the Empire State, and they were continually being revised. So uh, the developers for the Empire State really wanted theirs to be the world's tallest. They reviewed the plans, and they had floors added as necessary. So whenever one of the other designs would change, they'd change their own design and just keep going. 
Um, the first change was to add five floors as well as a spire. And uh, these floors had to be set back because of projected wind pressure on the extension. Uh, and then they continued to update the plans uh, to include the observation deck, which we all know and love on the 86th floor, uh, at a roof height of 1,050 feet, which was higher than the Chrysler 71st floor observation deck, which we briefly touched upon. Uh, but even then, the Empire State Building would have only been four feet taller than the Chrysler Building, and the developers were afraid that the Chrysler might try to pull a further trick, which, of course, they did. Put a spire uh, so on a spire or something exactly. along those lines. So the plans were revised one last time uh, in 1929 uh, to include a 16-story, 200-foot metal crown with an additional 222-foot mast intended for dirigibles. Um, the roof height was now over 12,000 feet, making it the tallest building in the world by far, even without the antenna. So they really just kind of knocked the competition out of the park with that one. And of course, although subsequent developments such as the Great Depression itself and then the country's entry into World War II, certain changes in aesthetics, what people were kind of looking for from office space, slowed down this idea of the super skyscraper. Um, the Empire State Building did remain the tallest building in the world until the completion of the World Trade Center in 1970 through 1972. So it uh, held on to its crown for a very long time. I believe it's still the fifth tallest building, no, sorry, second tallest building in New York City. And I believe it's the sixth tallest building in the United States today. So um, it's not doing too badly. It's definitely held up in terms of that. Although maybe, you know, uh, as a testament to, to, to New York commerce, and I know the Chrysler Building ran into this problem as well, at the beginning of the Depression, um, uh, they had built the observatory on the, as part of the Empire State Building. And when we got into the Depression and they weren't renting out a lot of the office space, uh, I heard, I don't know if, how true it is, that it was the dollar admissions for the, uh, for the observation deck that helped pay the mortgage on the building. Yes, the building did not actually become profitable until the 1950s when there were renovations made to some of the uh, sort of public transportation hubs nearby. And also, I think it just people just became more and more interested in having an uh, office there, in part because despite the fact that there wasn't a lot of tall building activity going on in the immediate area, uh, one of the things that, that happened was when they built the building, they created a zoning district that would ensure that other very tall buildings would not rise around it. So after a certain sort of series of levels, the so 20th, 30th floor, what have you, you were guaranteed a view. And the view was going to remain a view. So that in and of itself, I think, became a major selling point. Uh, but yes, in the 1950s, the building began to turn a profit. And I think it's really remained one of New York's most famous business addresses since that time period. There's uh, about a thousand companies currently housed in the building. Let's talk about the design and also specifically how the way the building was designed fostered that there would be a lot of natural light coming into those offices during the day. Well, the building uh, cleaves to the setback law and does so in a way that I think is maybe a little bit more immediately apparent than with the Chrysler building. Um, it's a much more massive building overall, but it rises up and it has a north-south orientation for the principal facade, which is rather unusual. Um, the um, sort of elevations that face Fifth Avenue are in fact not as eye-catching the building is wider than it is, uh, you know, sort of, it's sort of wider on the, um, the, the street side, the 42nd Street side, uh, by the 34th Street side, I should say. And what happened was as the building narrows, they managed to open up the offices within so that there's plenty of cross light and cross ventilation. And uh, they really are sort of um, buildings that catch a lot of the, the light as it goes up. So there, there was always plenty of light, regardless of where you are in the building. Uh, and due also part to the fact that the windows were actually um, slightly larger than was the case with even many of the residential buildings at the time. I don't think I ever told you this. One of my uh, a little sad, unrequited stories when I was in the media business and I worked for a search engine back in the late 90s, uh, we needed to move out of our office on Union Square. 
And um, uh, we went to look at, um, I went with my boss, uh, the VP of advertising, to look at a suite of offices on the 77th floor of the Empire State Building. <laughs> looked out those windows and I thought, oh my God, this would be amazing. Didn't come to pass, but anyway. Right. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's always been um, because of the, the nature of the building covenants and then later development, it's always been a little bit isolated, which also makes it seem all the more stupendous. Whereas buildings such as One Wall Street and even the Chrysler building now are a little bit, I won't say lost in the thicket, but they're not as um, as sort of towering, immediately uh, immediately visible as the Empire State Building still is. And it still is, you know, I, um, from, well, not so much on the northern and the southern ends of the island, but um, uh, even though the, the smaller facade is on the east and the west, when you're in Queens and driving or coming into New York, that building, especially at night, is so striking. I mean, it still yeah. continues to be. It's, it's just, you know, completely, you know, it is New York. It is iconic New York. I mean, interestingly, the original plan of the building was going to be 50 stories only, and then it was later increased to 60 and then 80 and et cetera and so forth. Mm. Um, but, uh, yes, it is uh, really kind of remarkable. And it's also, I think, they were very proud of the fact that they considered the full height of the building, minus the antenna, to be working space, whereas many of the other buildings had decorative spires or, you know, elements that weren't, you know, intended to be inhabited necessarily. They held mechanical equipment and stuff and so forth. So the Empire State Building was a, sort of a stickler for, no, we're going to use every part of this, including our dirigible mast, which turned out to be something of a damp squib, actually. Well, I, uh, when Al Smith was defeated uh, in the presidential election of 1928 and um, FDR had just become won the election of, uh, for governor of New York the same night Al Smith lost, um, uh, John Jacob Braskob, uh, he felt kind of sorry for Al and he made him not only the head of this project, but then they also went to the engineers and they said, how tall can we build this thing? How tall will the building be supported? And that's how they came up with the height because based on, um, uh, that's how, that's how, why it was built as, as tall as it was. Anyway, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about the Empire State Building and Art Deco skyscrapers in New York with our guest, David Griffin. We'll be back in a moment. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Are you a curious person, always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So Now You Know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com to Rediscovering New York, and you're back to Rediscovering New York in our special episode about Art Deco skyscrapers in the city. David, we're on for almost an hour, and the time is just flying by. We're, we're not going to get to talk about uh, everything that we want to. Um, uh, you, David, you're muted, by the way. Oh, no, 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 no you're not. Um, um, in the time that we have left, I want to talk a little bit about um, just – a little bit of trivia about the Empire State Building and things that people wouldn't have thought about it. You know, one of the things that I found remarkable in, in the construction 
was how fast this thing went up and literally the assembly line that existed. Steel was forged in Western Pennsylvania. It got put on flatbed uh, rail cars. When it got offloaded across the Hudson, the steel was still warm. The steel was still warm. And And how long did it take for the structure to go up? A year and three months, something like that? Yes, it went up very, very rapidly. I believe the first steel framework was installed on the 1st of April in 1930. And from there, there was one stretch of 10 working days where the builders erected as many as 14 floors. Now, a lot of this was made possible through a very precise coordination of the building's planning, as well as the mass production of the common materials, such as windows and spandrels. The Empire State Building has a markedly more severe appearance than the Chrysler Building or some of the other Art Deco buildings that we've mentioned. Um, and it's really quite remarkably abstract when you look at it. There are the two eagles that kind of are above the main entrance on Fifth Avenue, but there's not a lot of carving. There's not a lot of ornament per se. It really is a building that depends upon both illumination and proportion to kind of produce an architectural effect. And in some ways, I've often thought that the Empire State Building is an excellent example of a dictum that is more associated with modernism Uh, of the glass-walled school where form follows function. Uh, You know, the building really was designed to work, and the workings of the building are what controlled the design aspect of it. Um, I mean, obviously, the height of it was a little bit of a bragging point for the people involved. But, you know, even as you said, what they were really doing is that they were going to the limit of what they felt was possible. This is the building envelope that existed at that time for this building at that size. So... It's uh, almost one of those designs that seems somehow inevitable in a way, and possibly because of those reasons. One of the things that the building was designed for was to actually moor airships at the top. I can't imagine yes. doing that. Did that ever happen? Did they ever? That did... was one of the dumbest things I think they have ever tried to do. Um, it was a disaster. They had proposed a dirigible ticketing office and passenger waiting rooms up on the 86th floor. And then they were going to tie the dirigibles to the spire at what was the equivalent of today, the, in today the building's 106th floor. Uh, an elevator was supposed to ferry passengers from 86 to 101st floor after they checked in on the 86th floor, after which the passengers were going to, to climb ladders to board these airships. Um, the updrafts caused by the building itself and wind currents across Manhattan at that level would have knocked anybody stupid enough to try to do that right down in the Fifth Avenue below. Maybe that's what happened with King Kong. He tried to hail a Zeppelin and just <laughs> lost his balance. Lost in- These airplanes are bothering me. Hey, there's the Hindenburg. Oh, no. So I think they realized fairly uh, quickly that this was just not going to work. Another thing is, is that airships usually are tied down from the nose, but also from the rear. And due to the fact that the Empire State Building doesn't have two spires, it just has one, there would be no way to secure the tail end of the craft. It would be bobbing around, going up and down, and, you know, et cetera and so forth, exactly the way a balloon would when you hold it by a single string. So there was a time, September 15, 1931, the first and only instance of an airship using that building's mass, a small commercial United States Navy airship circled 25 times in 45-mile-per-hour winds, they attempted to dock at the mast, but the ballast spilled, and the craft was rocked by a series of eddies that were blowing up from Fifth Avenue below. Uh, it was nearly an actual disaster, and they just scuttled the whole idea right then and there. It was not going to happen. It, it, it's actually physically impossible to do something like that. You can't dock a dirigible at 102 stories above the ground. Well, you, you mentioned King Kong, which, of course, is a famous movie. There was another movie that I think was inspired by this idea of mooring airships at the top, although it wasn't at the Empire State Building, but would have been made around the time. It was called Madam Satan. And the last third of the movie, there's a party scene in an airship where people ascend to it from the top of a skyscraper. It's pre-code. It's really it's a, it's a funny movie. It's a fun movie called Madam I'll, Satan. I'll have to um, I'll have to look that up. Speaking of the dirigibles, it's occurring to me that in um, Evelyn Waugh's Decline and Fall, or no, actually, I think it was his Vile Bodies, there's also a party held in a dirigible that I think is accessed through similar means. And Mm. possibly Waugh had 
the Empire State Building in mind, although I'd have to check the date for that. That novel might have come out prior to the Empire State Building, in which case I suppose it could have inspired them. (laughs) Well, David, in the minute we have left, I want to make one other point, and um, that is that one thing that the Empire State Building gave us, or the construction of the Empire State Building gave us, was remarkable photographs, but specifically photography as the building was going up with the workers who worked on that frame. It's yes. almost like it spawned a new a, a new kind of photography just in the construction of the building. In some ways, it did. There had been photography taken of uh, the great skyscrapers as they were built from the early 1900s onwards. But Lewis Hine, who was the photographer that you're discussing, uh, created a series of amazing images that really gave you a sense of the kind of kinetic experience of having to build the building. In other words, it wasn't just a straight shot of, well, here's how far they got today, folks but he actually gave the workers this kind of sense that they were almost involved in an acrobatic troupe. You know, you looked at them and you're like, how can they be doing all of this stuff? This is the most amazing thing. You know, you, and you get a sense of them as individuals, you get a sense of them, you know, working together. It really was a remarkable series of photographs. Well, things that most people don't realize the Empire State Building gave us. Well, David, this has been a remarkable conversation. And as always happens when we're on the air, it ends and we're out of time. Right. Um, we've just finished this week's exploration into Art Deco skyscrapers in New York with our special guest, David Griffin, who's also our program special consultant. David's with Landmark Branding. You can reach him at www.landmarkbranding.com. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles on those channels are jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is, yes, the immortal David Griffin of Landmark Branding, our guest tonight. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you you next time. Thanks. ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a curious person always asking questions? Do you desire to be in the know? Then join me, Antonia, host of So Now You Know, Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. Listen in as I attempt to satisfy that curiosity. I will be talking with amazing everyday people. Join the fun. So now you know on Thursdays at 5 p.m. at talkradio.nyc. 
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 